Welcome to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and in this podcast we interview leaders and experts in critical care. And for today, we go to Canada to discuss non-invasive respiratory support in critically ill patients. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Laurent Brochard. I'm an intensivist uh, and scientist uh, in uh, Toronto, Canada. I'm uh, the uh, division director for the University of Toronto for critical care, the critical care medicine division. And uh, for many years, I've been uh, focusing my research on acute respiratory failure and mechanical ventilation, uh, invasive or non-invasive. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, uh, Dr. Brashar. Um, today we'll be discussing um, your paper that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was a review article, um, and it was entitled Non-Invasive Respiratory Support for Adults with Acute Respiratory Failure. Um, your co-authors were Lavina Munchi and uh, Jordi Manchevo. So maybe you could go ahead and tell us, why did you and your team write this review article? Yeah, so... Maybe just a few words to mention my co-authors. So, as you said, Lavina Munchi, she's a um, uh, associate professor in Toronto. Here, she's uh, very interested by uh, patients with uh, onchohematologic disorders, and for instance, uh, uh, these patients often experience acute respiratory failure, and uh, techniques of non-invasive ventilatory support are are very important to um, to understand uh, and uh, apprehend well. Um, Jordi Mancebo is an old friend of mine who very sadly passed away just before the publication of this paper. And uh, he was a fantastic uh, physiologist and uh, and colleague and friend. And, and we have been working together since... Uh, the end of the 1980s. I don't know if people uh, have any idea what it was at that time before uh, before internet, etc. And we have been publishing the first papers on non-invasive ventilation in patients with chronic ex- uh, with exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, the first study in New England was uh, mostly a physiological study with a short. Uh, um, match paired comparison. And the second study in 1995 was a, let's say, the first randomized control trial in the ICU showing a decrease in intubation, a decrease in mortality um, with non invasive ventilation. And why is it something we wanted to revisit uh, these days and for this paper? I think. Um, uh, um, an important aspect has been what happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. Because in a way, the COVID-19, we, we can talk forever about what happened and the difficulties, etc. but was a kind of uh, uh, unique opportunity to study a relatively homogeneous disease, which was mostly acute respiratory failure. Of course, pa- a lot of patients developed multiple organ failure, but um, it's, it was really mostly the initial presentation as acute respiratory failure. And throughout the world, people have used all kinds of 
non-invasive ventilatory support techniques to try to, to reduce the intubation rate for the benefit of the patients and also because it was uh, there was no other way and there was no possibility to put all these patients in the ICU. And the pandemic lasted long enough and uh, people were um, you know, eager to, to do clinical research um, that uh, it has been possible to show that uh, several different techniques could be um, helpful and efficient to decrease the intubation rate, so to prevent intubation. So it, it has been really a very important moment because uh, especially in uh, hypoxemic acute, acute hypoxemic respiratory failure, there were there was questioning about the the risk versus benefit of non-invasive ventilation, and the pandemic showed that really uh, it was possible to reduce intubation to have less patients under mechanical ventilation, which uh, uh, is is uh, is a benefit for patients uh, on the short term and probably also on the long term. So this is this is what really uh, motivated us to to go back to this uh, uh, to this discussion and to visit the, the multiple different indications about non-invasive ventilatory support. Yeah, I definitely agree. The COVID-19 pandemic uh, definitely brought to the fore the importance of uh, non-invasive respiratory support. Um, maybe for our audience, you could just, uh, before we get into the different uh, therapies, maybe you could go ahead and define um, respiratory failure for us and what the different components are. Yeah, that's an important point because the, um, there are different uh, aspects of the respiratory failure. You know, when you... You teach students, you say you have a hypercapnic and hypoxemic respiratory failure. And this is a very important, uh, uh, it's a bit schematic, but uh, separation into what is mostly a gas exchange problem. So uh, hypoxemic respiratory failure and the ventilation problem, which is hypercapnic respiratory failure. Of course, in real life, both types of respiratory failure can be combined, but uh, this is the responsibility of the clinician to try to understand what's, what's the main problem. And if the main problem is ventilatory failure, which is usually indicated by hypercapnia and respiratory acidosis, uh, you need a technique which will increase ventilation. And the primary technique which, which increases ventilation is inspiratory pressure. So like pressure support or pressure control, you need a positive inspiratory pressure above the baseline, which will be your PEEP. In, in case of uh, hypoxemic respiratory failure, you want to improve gas exchange and the matching between ventilation and perfusion. And for that, you need positive pressure at the end of expiration to try to reopen the lung during inspiration and keep it open. So very, very simply, if it's more hypoxemic, you know that you will need some positive pressure. If it's more hypercapnic, you know you will need inspiratory positive pressure. However, it's never that simple. And one 
reason, interesting one, is that even PEEP, by improving respiratory mechanics, can help ventilation. So PEEP is not primarily designed to increase ventilation, but by improving compliance and also by improving gas exchange, you the patient will have less effort to do during uh, inspiration and therefore indirectly you will help uh, the inspiratory effort of the patient, the ventilation and the work of breathing. And this is important because we know that patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure during prolonged um, uh, sessions of non-invasive ventilation or or without non-invasive ventilation, just uh, um, a long episode of acute respiratory failure can progressively worsen and can progressively develop uh, muscle failure, even muscle fatigue or muscle injury. So it's 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 also important to provide some degree of uh, ventilation assist. Um, the clinician has to decide whether the positive pressure given at end expiration is sufficient or not. And that's uh, something where the, you know, the astute clinician is so important at the bedside to decide of the settings and, and the type of apparatus. Um, uh, the last aspect I'd like to mention is that um, a lot of patients have um, higher than normal what we call dead space. Dead space is really wasted ventilation. It's a part of the ventilation which will not provide any gas exchange. So it's it's something you do for nothing. And for this dead space ventilation, there are two main components. Well, one is within the lung. For instance, the alveoli are open and ventilated, but there is almost no perfusion. So that's that's anatomical um, uh, alveolar dead space, if you wish. And the other one is if you are not able to take sufficient large tidal volume, uh, and because you have a fixed anatomical dead space in the airway, your proportion of the tidal volume to the dead space may be dangerously bad, meaning that most of your ventilation which just uh, go into the dead space, making your ventilation inefficient. I'm saying that it's important because there is one technique, which is the high flow nasal cannula, which is the only one which addresses a little bit this question by flushing the upper airway and therefore reducing part of the dead space, at least the part which is in the uh, oropharyngeal cavity. So that's a pretty useful start, um, you know, separating it into hypocarbic versus hypoxic respiratory failure um, and addressing it with um, inspiratory pressure versus PEEP or high flow. The question that a lot of clinicians face is, um, I've got a patient with hypoxemic respiratory failure. Should I be using um, CPAP um, or should I be using high flow? What would you say are the indications for each yeah, that's a very good question. You know, in the past, so let's say CPAP is providing positive pressure at the end of expiration. For instance, it's very useful 
after abdominal surgery, which is a, or you know, um, or or thoracic surgery even. But thoracic surgery, you have you have sometimes uh, concern about the, using high pressure. But um, and the reason is that you, for instance, after abdominal surgery, large abdominal surgery, your diaphragm is not working or not working well, and you have atelectasis, which needs pressure to be reopened. So it makes complete sense to deliver CPAP in these situations. Um, in patients with hypoxemic respiratory failure, it's a mix of, I, I'm going to use words which, which um, may be sometimes confusing, but it's a mix of consolidation, and consolidation would be um, a part of the lung which, let's say, is infected or is is filled with edema, which will not reopen, not or not easily, would would need really very high pressure. And on this consolidation, you cannot do much. But it's a mix of consolidation and atelectasis. Why do you have atelectasis? Well, because your your lung is a dematus is heavy, and because of the gravity, you tend to have a, a collapse in the in the dorsal part uh, of the lung, especially near the diaphragm. And for this atelectasis, again, CPAP is very useful. So, so, so it's, there is no universal response to your question. CPAP can be useful. I, I would say I would be very careful um, if delivering CPAP to a patient um, with hypoxemic respiratory failure to try to see if really it improves patients' work of breathing. And I know we don't measure it, we, we estimate it. And the respiratory rate is not a very good estimate of the work of breathing. It's mostly the, the intensity of each inspiration. So do you use your accessory muscle? Do you use the, the muscles of the neck? Uh, and of course, do you, uh, do you sweat? Do you have any mental impairment, which, which would be very... Uh, signs of very poor tolerance. So you have to check whether you do help the patients and not only in terms of oxygenation, because this is the biggest risk with CPAP is that uh, the PO2 looks better, but in fact, you do not improve um, the patient's work of breathing. And at the end, you do not help the patient. So I think CPAP is a good technique. It can be used as a as the first line therapy, if you're comfortable and you have a good CPAP technique, that's that's another um, issue. Uh, but you have to be careful to be sure that your patient first tolerate well the CPAP and uh, as a benefit in terms of work of breathing. The advantage of high flow is that uh, this is very well tolerated. Really, it's it's. Um, um, it's even better tolerated than the, the venturi mask, for instance, because the, your, the, the, the gas you breathe is humidified, heated, so it's very physiological. It's really simple to uh, deliver, and you know that this has been used in emergency departments, uh, on the floor, uh, and not only in the ICU. And, and again, it can help. So... I would say with all these techniques, you, you need to have a first try and see what's, uh, what's the result for the patient because it's a bit difficult to predict. But high flow 
would be a very good first choice for many patients. And the CPAP could be a next step. Got you. And then in terms of the evidence uh, for supporting high flow versus CPAP versus BiPAP, um, there's a number of conditions that we frequently encounter um, either before patients are intubated or even after they've uh, been intubated and are now extubated. Um, patients can have uh, cardiogenic pulmonary edema, COPD, obesity, respiratory failure, um, um, and then, they, as you said, can be seen post-surgery. Which settings would you not use high flow or CPAP or BiPAP? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and maybe you could answer that question first and then go through um, which of those modalities would you choose for each of those conditions first? Yeah, no, that's a smart way to, to ask your question. Um, there is one condition which I did not mention, which is obesity. And, and we see a lot of these patients, right? So some places uh, have more than 50% of their patients obese. And in these patients, um, uh, PEEP is extremely useful. It's useful first because many of these patients will have uh, associated sleep disorders and uh, obstructive apnea syndromes, which which needs to be treated with CPAP. And I always tell my, uh, my colleagues in the ICU who are not familiar with the uh, with the way uh, OSA patients are treated at home, I say, look at uh, these patients and uh, ask how much PEEP this patient is using at the baseline where, you know, the PEEP has been titrated based on the physiological effect. And and they are surprised to see that some of these patients have PEEP at baseline of 15, 20 centimeters of water, something they they would never uh, use at, at, as the first attempt in these patients. So my point is obese patients, and sorry, there is another reason for having a relatively high PEEP in this patient. It's because of the high intrathoracic pressure. They need pressure to counteract the effect of the weight of the chest wall. It's not, it's not that the chest wall is stiff. It's, it's like if you, if you take a, a very big textbook and you put this textbook on your chest, this is the effect of obesity. So you need pressure to counteract and high flow in this regard may not be sufficient to to give enough pressure. So I would say obese patients would need such high levels of pressure than... uh, BiPAP or even CPAP, but uh, BiPAP would be really uh, very appropriate, would be the the first choice in this patient with acute uh, respiratory failure. Uh, A second category that you mentioned are patients with uh, cardiogenic pulmonary edema. In these patients, a small level of positive pressure is extremely useful. Uh, this level of, of PEEP will help to um, improve uh, the mechanics by, by keeping the lung open and improving compliance. This will decrease the intrathoracic pressure swings related to patient's effort. And this will have a, sometimes a huge benefit on the cardiac function. So you usually need pressure between 5 and 10 centimeters of water. 
I would say potentially high flow could be useful there, but we, we have very limited experience. And CPAP or BiPAP when the patient is hypercapnic, which is uh, often uh, the case, CPAP or BiPAP would be my preferred choice because they work so well. And you don't, you're not going to deliver it for very long. It's not like pneumonia. It's something which can be treated with, with medications and you need some time as a bridge until the medications work out. So cardiogenic pulmonary edema, I would also recommend CPAP or BiPAP if the patient is hypercapnic as the first line treatment. The, the, the problem, of course, as you perfectly know, with this discussion is that um, we rarely have a pure patient having just one thing. We, we often have patients with multiple comorbidities and uh, you have to decide again as a clinician what's the most important for this patient. But this is the, the main general principles. And in terms of monitoring the patients, I think you alluded to uh, the PF ratio. Um, but uh, what modalities, or when you're at the bedside, um, what are you looking at uh, in terms of, you know, the patient effort, uh, their breathing rate, uh, other yeah. markers? Um, how are you monitoring your patients? No, that's a very important point, and that's uh, that's something where probably we will continue to have more work and maybe more monitoring techniques. Um, so oxygenation first. This is important. You, you, you need to improve oxygenation. If it fails to improve oxygenation, that's, that's a concern. However, um, we know that, for instance, uh, just uh, reducing cardiac output in hypoxemic respiratory failure can improve your uh, oxygenation, um, but not, not the oxygen delivery, because if you improve the oxygen content, but decrease the oxygen, uh, the cardiac output, you will not improve oxygen delivery. So, so oxygenation is certainly not the ultimate goal. It, it has to be efficient in terms of oxygenation, but it's not sufficient. And, and we have seen in the past a number of patients who were well oxygenated, but failed because of respiratory muscle fatigue, exhaustion, or, or, you know, uh, poor cardiac output and, uh, and multiple organ failure. So beyond oxygenation, you, you would like to monitor work of breathing, but work of breathing is best monitored with uh, esophageal pressure, which is complicated to place in this situation. And I don't think many centers can do that. So you need to rely on clinical examination to uh, try to see what the patient's work of breathing. And again, the phasic contraction of the muscles of the neck are often um, easy to, to visualize. And whether it's improved by the technique or not is important. The, the classical uh, clinical signs of uh, higher work of breathing, I would say, are important. The respiratory rate, the problem with respiratory rate is that you can have a high range of effort without much change in respiratory rate. So it, we, we need to monitor it, but it's not uh, the best technique. So it's really clinical examination. 
And of course, if you have associated cardiovascular failure or, um, you know, uh, the level of consciousness and mentation is not good, um, these are very important signs to decide that you may need to intubate the patient. And there are many reasons for that. One is, for instance, that uh, the experimental evidence about respiratory muscle fatigue has been mostly demonstrated when you have also cardiac failure, right? Whether it's cardiogenic or septic shock, then uh, it's... And, and the reason is easy to understand. It's because you have both a high demand on the, the, the respiratory muscle, but you have insufficient supply. So if you think your cardiac output is not adequate, you know, hypoperipheral perfusion is not good, lactate is high, that's a sign that uh, the patient will do better with mechanical ventilation. Um, and the other, the other risk is that the patient working very hard because of the stimulation due to uh, the lung injury may develop what we call the patient self-inflicted lung injury. This is a bit a theoretical concept because we don't know when it happens in patients. We have some good experimental evidence, but uh, in patients, it's hard to know when it happens. But just to keep in mind that, for instance, if you push too much on the ventilatory assist, the tidal volume may go high. And we have seen uh, in, in different independent studies that when the tidal volume on the ventilator, something with, which you can monitor by looking at the expired tidal volume, is uh, above uh, 9 or 9.5 milliliter per kilogram, um, there is a very high chance that the patient will fail and it's probably um, something you can incorporate into your decision for intubation. And then in your decision for intubation, um, how does the PF ratio uh, play in? Um, that being uh, the, the ratio of the PO2 versus the FO2. So, so let's say on the, if we look at the epidemiological studies, which look at... Um, hypoxemic patient treated with non-invasive ventilation. Um, people have used the same category of ARDS, like, you know, mild, moderate, severe, um, which would mean a PF ratio below 300, below 200, or below 100. Uh, or it can be transformed into a SPO2 or FiO2 ratio. Um, the point is that the category at really high risk where your intubation threshold should be relatively early are patients who start with PF ratio below 150. In, in this group, let's say if the patient does not respond very spectacularly uh, with your technique, uh, you know you start with a risk of intubation of at least 50%. So, so your threshold for deciding intubation would be, um, would be lower. So that's how I would use the, the, the PF ratio. And if the PF ratio goes down and you have to you know, continuously increase 
uh, FIO2 and PIP, um, I think uh, that's that's a, a good reason to intubate the patient. Got you. And uh, as you said, you know, it's a clinical picture of the patient, not just uh, one number. Yes. Um, yeah. And then, uh, which patients would you not um, do non-invasive um, respiratory support? Uh, you'd go straight to intubation. Yeah, I. We. You know, we tend to to use non-invasive ventilation very frequently, but I would say it's mostly um, the about the other organs. Um, I, I I'm I'm sure it's obvious for for many people, but uh, uh, loss of consciousness, so very low Glasgow score, um, you know, carries a high risk of uh, aspiration. Uh, patients with uh, minimal consciousness and a lot of secretions, and patients with shock. Um, again, there are very, very convincing data showing that if you have shock um, and your lactate go up, it's uh, to and the patient is not intubated. The it's to a large extent due to the high oxygen consumption by the respiratory muscles. So going to intubation will uh, we help improve the circulatory status. So I would say the number one reason, the number, yeah, the two most uh, important concern would be about circulatory failure and uh, and level of consciousness. Gotcha. And I, I think you all put up a really good, uh, in your review article, um, in figure one, uh, the evidence for uh, non-invasive ventilation, and then in, fig in table one and table two, um, both the considerations uh, when using these therapies, as well as um, the monitoring uh, devices. Um, Dr. Bouchard, maybe we could turn to um, how do we minimize complications? Uh, there's always risks of complications uh, with, with therapies. Uh, what complications should the uh, clinician or respiratory therapist be aware of uh, when using high-flow CPAP, BiPAP? Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, just to, to address your, your point, say, yes, we, we, we try really to review the evidence in, in all the different indications. Uh, including the use of these techniques to, after extubation to prevent reintubation, which I think is uh, is very um, uh, popular these days, um, we, with the difficulty that there are a lot of studies uh, ongoing, so the, the the evidence is is moving. But about the complication, that's important. So I would say uh, first, uh, delivering non-invasive ventilation is a teamwork. Um, you need, you know, dedicated respiratory therapists, uh, nurses, uh, physician. Uh, um, then you will have questions of uh, of, of physio soon, then nutrition, etc. But uh, um, I would say a very simple message is the to say the last thing we want to see is a patient is the emergency emergency intubation in the middle of the night. This is bad. This is uh, at risk of cardiac arrest. This is meaning that we have been pushing too much and too long. And I say the middle of the night because uh, I take it as an example of, uh, 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 you know, a, a time where the patients maybe have, have less monitoring. So I think 
everybody should be um, aware of this number one risk that which is pushing too far for too long and really intubation sh should be based on the the trajectory of the patient and again looking at uh, clinical assessment of worker breathing circulatory complications and uh, and the level of consciousness so if if the patient is doing progressively worse um, you you really want to intubate before it becomes a catastrophic event which which really can be associated with cardiac arrest and a poor outcome um, in the studies i don't think we see that often uh, but even if you have a few cases where you know you regret that the decision for intubation was taken too late that's that's really bad so that's something as a quality measure you you should look back at your data in your own icu and say are we intubating intubating patients in emergency situation and if we do that it's because probably we do it too late so again the team has to look at that and avoid this complication so that's the number the main complication the other complications are less than um, well the other complications are intolerance to the mask and this is where new techniques like the helmet are really very interesting because uh, the helmet is a hood you put on the head and you don't have any pressure direct pressure on the nose which is uh, sometimes becomes very painful and you have uh, pressure sores which which really can look bad for <laughs> days and days after the ICU stay. So, yeah, the helmet is very interesting and may improve the tolerance of the technique, which uh, is really the number two complication. And then people are often afraid of uh, the risk of regurgitation or the risk of uh, gastric insufflation. I think this risk is relatively low. Um, if the pressure is not higher than 20 or 25 centimeters of water, the risk of gastric insufflation is, is extremely small. So I think it, it may happen. And uh, I know that many places don't give enteral nutrition during non-invasive ventilation. Maybe it's, it's okay for the first two days, but you cannot do that for too long. Um, so that's, that's uh, uh, another minor complications. Maybe you could comment on that. Um, there are some uh, practices where if the, uh, with high flow, if the flow is more than 30 liters per minute, um, uh, they tend not to feed the patients because of the risk of aspiration. And then as you mentioned already, um, in some patients who are on BiPAP or a mask, um, the, the people don't insert uh, enteral feeding tubes, uh, the nasogenital feeding tubes because of the concern for aspiration. Um, is there evidence to support that, or, or, or what would your suggestions be? No, I don't think so. I don't think the evidence support that. Uh, all the studies show that if you close your mouth with high flow, maybe you can reach pressure in the oropharynx close to 7 centimeters of water, uh, which is completely insufficient to, to open your, your esophagus. There have been very good studies with the laryngeal mask, you know, placing directly something at the tip of the esophagus and the airway. 
And until you reach a pressure around 20, 25 directly there, you, you, you cannot open the esophagus. So with high flow, I don't see any risk of gastric insufflation. I, I would not. Um, uh, and the high flow is going to, you know, generate uh, a, a washout of the upper airway. So many of the patients will keep their mouth open and the pressure will be minimum. One interesting aspect of the high flow is that um, it's a bit counterintuitive, but it creates a kind of uh, resistance to expiration. Okay, during your normal expiration, you, it's it's usually passive. So you may use a little bit your expiratory muscle, but it's passive. However, with high flow, you have a continuous flow going in the opposite direction. So it's it's a kind of resistance to expiration. And this is why I think patients usually decrease their respiratory rate because you see their expiration is lengthened. And that's a physiological phenomenon. When you breathe against an expiratory resistance, you, you take a longer time to expire, which, which may be a benefit for your lungs because it keeps your lung open for a longer time. But again, these pressure are insufficient to, to create any risk on the gastric insufflation. So I would not stop feeding during high flow. Um, uh, based on all this evidence. So the question that some folks raise is it's not the um, uh, the gastric uh, secretions that are coming back up, but actually while the patient is chewing and swallowing um, that the high flow may uh, impair uh, a well-coordinated swallow and some of the food may accidentally get aspirated that way. What would your response to that be? Well, uh, that's, that's an interesting point which may need to be studied. You know, the swallowing function is a really complex one. Um, I, I would say swallowing at the same time may be impaired. I, I don't think we have evidence for that, but I think it's worth studying it. Uh, but it's about, if it's about uh, a feeding tube, I, I would not be concerned. If it's about gotcha. swallowing, um, I would say, you know, with high flow, the, the patient really um, will tell you whether it's comfortable or not, uh, whether... And, and if the patient tells you, well, I'd like to drink, but I'm a bit concerned by this, what I feel in my uh, mouth, maybe you can reduce the flow during the time the patient is, is, uh, is trying to swallow. Because uh, maybe this is a legitimate question, but I don't think we have already concerned that the, the swallowing function will be impaired. Gotcha. And then in terms of uh, future research, um, there are no perfect therapies and um, there's obviously the future research that needs to be done with high flow, with CPAP, with yeah. BiPAP. Um, when speaking to the research that's ongoing to investigators, what would you advise them to start working on or to continue working on um, that we need to address uh, to improve the care of patients uh, in the ICU and uh, uh, in the step-down units before they get to the ICU? Yeah, that's a very good point. So some very important points have been, we, we have been discussing that already. So one is the monitoring of the patient. Uh, there is one group in Italy who is proposing to, to put a small catheter in the nose. So not an esophageal catheter, not a, a tube going 
down very far, but just in the nose. Um, and try to measure the pressure swings in the nose as a kind of surrogate for the esophageal pressure. And, and we need more, more data, but they are suggesting that this could be a good way to estimate patients' work of breathing. So this is one approach which can be studied. Uh, people have tried to develop different indexes to predict the risk of intubation, like the ROCKS index uh, using the SpO2-FiO2 ratio and the respiratory rate for the high flow, or uh, the HACOR index for the uh, non-invasive ventilation. Uh, these are really interesting um, indexes. That it depends how much of the trajectory of the patient again, and when you look at it, and 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 whether it has a, a superior, um, it's a superior indicator than the clinical examination is not completely clear. So we need more research on that. I think we need research on the interface, and of course that does not depend only on the clinician, but um, testing, having different interfaces is, I think, really important in the ICU. Um, and for instance, we in our ICU, we, we have the helmet, we have different face masks. I, I think in the future we will have more um, types of face masks because... Uh, the big limitation, for instance, when you use a classical, even very comfortable face mask, is the pressure on on the on the nose and the and having mask without this pressure there could offer much better tolerance and therefore be able to deliver the technique for much longer. Um, and some people have published about the combination of high flow and and nasal ventilation. So that's also interesting to, to study. I would say for practical aspect, uh, the combine, com combining or alternating high flow and non-invasive ventilation is also a very interesting approach because you just uh, have relatively limited duration for the NIV sessions, which may not be completely well tolerated. And in between, you can uh, use the... Uh, uh, high flow technique. Gotcha. Um, Dr. Bouchard, you've been very generous with your time and uh, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak to us um, about your uh, manuscript. Um, do you have any uh, concluding remarks for us um, or any take-home points uh, for our audience? Um, we definitely encourage everyone to uh, read this paper. It was published in the NEJM. It was entitled Non-Invasive Respiratory Support for Adults with Acute Respiratory Failure. And has really good uh, tables and figures and uh, text uh, to aid you in managing your patients. Uh, Dr. No, thank Bouchard, you so uh, much. the final word? Thank you so much. I would say... Um, this is really, we, we're all trying to do our best to improve uh, patients' outcome. And what's really, really, really important is to have good clinicians at the bedside. Thank you very much. A big thank you to Dr. Brashad. And a big thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy Critical Perspective podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.